Last week we had started a series on finances. How many of us like talking about finances? <sighs> How many preachers like to talk on finances? I'm not raising my hand. But here's what I know. Last week was actually an amazing time for our church because I had spoken on finances and I had then asked to see if anyone needed a time of prayer. And during that time of prayer, I had more people come up to me about different issues in their life than I think we've ever had. That was just something on the spot. Because whenever we talk about finances, what happens when you're sitting in your seat? You become very uncomfortable. Because you are terrified either of what I'm going to say, right? Or what is God asking of you? And one of the things that you, I had shared last week was is that you know that I'm not afraid of uncomfortable. But I'm, I'm not afraid of uncomfortable for one reason, one reason alone. Because sometimes when we, matter of fact, let me change it. Every time we bring up uncomfortable topics with friends, with family, in church, in smaller settings, I feel what, what we do is we unlock something in our soul that allows for transparency to be opened up and healing to come. And I know that there's many people, and I'm not just going to say many of you because that's not fair to say. I can say over my almost 20 years of doing ministry that there's three topics that people come to me. And it's three topics that come to every pastor. First is marriage. I have so many people that, have, that will come to me to talk to me about their marriages. Here's one of the, the neatest facts that I've ever heard in a church. I have learned that when you begin to get people to understand the mission of God, God heals, heals marriages. I have seen more healings of marriages here at the plant and in this ministry than I have any other church I've been into because of this. We don't make it about you. We don't make it about your spouse. We say, what has God called the two of you to to have a bigger picture for your life? And I'll say this, that's where I see healing comes in marriage. Because too often when you're talking about marriage, it's always about her versus me, me versus her. And you make it more about yourself than anything else. So marriage is one of the most uncomfortable conversations to have in church, especially if you've been through divorce or are going through divorce or if your marriage is basically a living hell, right? Some of you probably feel uncomfortable that I just said that, but it's the truth. For some people, their marriage is a living hell. And I'll say this, God wants to rescue your marriage. One of the most uncomfortable topics to talk about. The second is sex. What? What's that? Here we go again, right? Remember salt and pepper? Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about... No, stop that. Um, but it's really one of the most uncomfortable topics to ever discuss. Because why? It's the most intimate part of our humanity. Amen? Come on. Right? Right. We either love it or something's wrong. And that's the reality. The third is finances. Because of this. You see, you're just going like this, that make you nervous? So the third is this, it's finances. 
Because finances are a struggle because in that, what happens is, when we talk about finances, it's, it's either what we can control or what we feel has made our lives out of control. Right? If we have a lot, we want to control it. And if we don't have enough, we feel out of control. But I will say this. When we deal with certain issues in our life, God brings radical transformation. Now, coming here today, is this not going to be going to like your regular mainline church and just kind of making you feel fluffy good and send you out? Today, I want to not shy away from this topic. And I really believe that a lot of you come here because you know that I don't shy away from topics. And so I'm only going to share with you this morning out of what God has been dealing with me for since the day I became a Christian. There were two things that stuck stuck out to people last week. The first was that I can't believe Jesus spoke so much about money. Well, what do you mean? Do you know that 11 out of his 39 parables had some form of reference of finances? Do you know in the Gospel of Luke, one out of every seven verses has a finance reference. Do you know that, that Jesus had referenced finances and materialism more than He did heaven or hell? And the only thing that He referenced more than finances and materialism was the kingdom of God. And yet when He describes the kingdom of God, what does He describe it with? Streets of what? Pearly white gates. Right? Don't we all want our driveways with gold? That way when you're struggling and you need to pay your phone, you just go out there, chick, 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 chick. Give it to Verizon Wireless. But in that, there's this whole tension. But this is what Jesus dealt with. And we talked about this last week. Was dependency upon Him. When you look at all of the parables all the passages that Jesus dealt with. He dealt with security. He dealt dealt with idols. And He dealt with an unhealthy view of abundance. And all He did is He flipped that right side up and He said, I want to teach you the most powerful form of abundance, which is dependency on God. Listen to this passage. Jesus said this. I think this is one of the most profound things that He said. He said, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Listen to that. There where your treasures are, there where you put your focus, there is where the desire of your heart will be. And I think that's something that we can all relate to. Is that what we focus on most is what we care about most. What we get fixated on more than anything else is what we value the most. When a guy only talks about his work and his vocation and his wife is, is, is fighting with him because she feels that he's married to his job rather than to her or vice versa, the tension is 
This is what you are fixated on. Women, do I get an amen? Amen. Susie Q? Amen. Amen. But in that, that's the truth. That's the truth. What we are fixated upon is what we value most. And so this morning, I want to talk about stewardship. I want to walk through the Old Testament and the Gospel and Acts and talk about this idea of stewardship. And stewardship is simply this. Realizing that God is the owner of everything. And everything that He has given to me is for me to bring Him glory and to do it respectfully. And this is one of those topics that is very, very difficult to talk about because so often people have been manipulated by churches. So many people, if you've come from the Catholic background, let's just use this. If you've come from the Catholic background, because I deal with a lot of people that have come out of Catholicism, they are terrified to step in a church when it comes time to a topic like this. If you've come from a Baptist background, you are also terrified about this. If you've come from a charismatic background, you love this topic because God wants to bless you, right? But seriously, this is the truth. But here's what I want to say. If you're here visiting... And you're saying, listen, I'm just here to visit. I'm not into this Jesus thing. I'm kind of stepping my foot into the waters. I'm here to check out what's going at the plant. This is not for you. This sermon is actually for those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And if you're here visiting and you're like, hey, I don't even know where I stand in this Jesus thing. For whatever reason, I'm here. Here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear my heart. Because that's what's most important. It's not what's said. It's how it's said. And so if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, this sermon is exactly for you. Because what I'm going to share with you is not just what, what the Bible says, but something that God has been convicting me of and wrestling with me in view of how am I a steward? How do I handle what it means to truly rely on the dependency of God? Of God. So do me a favor, turn with me in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 6, 10 through 13. And if you don't have it, can we flash it up here, Mark? I want to read this verse for you. I'll give you one minute. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Let's read it. The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land He swore to give you when He made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is in the land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods you did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns you did not dig. And you will eat from vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord, your God, and serve Him. When you take an oath, you must use only His name. Here is a passage. Some time had passed, and all throughout the beginning of Scripture, we saw how humanity was dependent on God. It began with Adam and Eve in the garden, where God provided all things for them. 
And not only did He provide all things, He, he provided all things abundantly. We see this with Moses. We see this with Abraham. We see this with Jacob. We see this with Isaac. All throughout the lifespan of an individual that God had stepped into their world, God had challenged them to trust Him for all their provisions. I mean, Abraham was called to leave everything he knew. He was called to leave his land to go to a place where God had promised him that was flowing with a land of that which would be of milk and honey. And so he challenged Abraham. And he says, do you love me enough? Do you trust me enough to take you to a place that's better than here? And all throughout the Old Testament, God was always challenging His people to learn dependency on Him. And there came a a place in the history of the Israelites where they began to give God a name in view of how He provided. That name was simply this. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Say that with me. God will provide. It wasn't God may provide or God can provide. It was actually God will provide. And the reality is is that when you look at the people and the story of the Israelites, and this was great. We actually watched this movie last night. The Exodus, Gods and Kings. That's the story of, um, of Moses. I would really challenge you as families to sit down and watch it together. It was, it was excellent, excellent. It was It was so well done. It wasn't fully biblically accurate, but it kept the main theme to it. It wasn't like Noah when it became like rock gods. Remember that in the the story of Noah? It's a little bit different. But the beautiful thing is this. God always provided for the Israelites, no matter what. In plenty or scarcity, God always provided. No matter what happened, God always made sure His people were taken care of. And there, the only time that the Israelites missed out on the blessing of God is when they stopped trusting Him. And God said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to let you provide for yourself and see how you do it. You see, this is the thing about it. As I wrestled through this whole idea of stewardship and provisions, so much of that is dependent on how we have experienced provisions in our past. I mean, think about that. Remember I gave you the the example of of Omar and myself last week? Do you remember that? Do you remember how I grew up in a family where, where my dad's provisions were good and they were whole? And it was good to be a Parker in the 90s. I mean, it was a good thing because my father provided for me in a way that was just unbelievably over the top. And Omar has shared on many occasions of the scarcity that he was living in. Correct? Right, Omar? But the neat thing is, is when you look at Omar's story fully, God always provided for the Nieblezes. Always. He was always provided for. But what happens is when we talk about provisions, it is so much dependent 
on what we have experienced in our lives. It was dependent on our parents. It was dependent on their circumstances. It's dependent on your situation now, your, your marriage. Maybe you are divorced and your spouse failed you tremendously and you put all of your hope in their provisions and then you're stuck and you're like, how can I trust anyone ever again? Isn't that fair to say? And so, so much of this understanding about God really began with the people of Israel watching their ancestors from the past. It was, the, it was Moses being able to trust what God had done beforehand with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was how David watched how God rescued the Israelites and used Moses as his leader. It was how Daniel, who was put into a place of slavery, was able to look back and see David and so forth and so forth and so on. And so all of this time, the Israelites were dependent on understanding how God provided for the people in the past. And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God challenged them to trust the wells that were already dug. That's why He challenges them in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to trust the vineyards that were already planted. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that He said, trust the land that was already farmed. Because for centuries, God was providing for His people. And so when you were an Israelite, you had one of two choices. Do I continue to trust? Or do I choose to find my own way? But there was three things, and Omar has talked about this before. There were three things that God had told the people of Israel to trust them with. Because what God had done is He says, you're going to go harvest the land. You're going to go make the wine. You're going to go get the honey. You're going to go farm the animals. You're going to be this culture. And all I want you to do is be able to learn to trust Me. And He asked them to trust them with three simple things. First, the Levite tithe. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to take 10% of your crop. So let's say you're uh, um, Hershey. What's that guy's name? The first name Hershey? What's it? Milton Hershey. And you make 10 M&Ms. I want you to trust Me with one M&M. That's what God was saying to the Israelites. When you go apple picking and you go grab 10 apples, I want you to bring one to me knowing that I'm the one who produced the apple tree. And you get this picture that when we think about what God was asking of the Israelites, we're like, man, that seems so over the top, but, but simplify it to its simple, most common denominator. God was saying, I'm going to provide for you in abundance and lead you and guide you in a way that this is how we're going to do it. And then what he asked of them, he did this once a year, a festive tithe. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 14. A festive tithe was taken once a year, not all the time. And actually what a festive tithe was, was it was a tithe, 10%, that they gave to the temple for the temple to throw a huge celebration for honoring God for how He produced the fruits and the vegetables and the animals. 
And so that was the second thing. But then there was a third thing that he asked. And this is something that probably is most, most dear to our heart. It was the poor tithe. This was taken every third year to support the poor and indignant. And so every three years, okay, every three years, they would take another tithe and say, we're going to set this aside for the poor, for the lame, for the crippled, for the widow, for those who cannot provide for themselves. And the funny thing about this is when you study the Israelites, God always provided for them. And He not only provided for them, but He always provided them with abundance. He always made sure that they were taken care of. And yes, in this world, we know that it seems that some people are taken care of better than others. Isn't that true? I think that's the tension that we wrestle with the most. Is we almost look at people and instead of seeing the blessings that we have, we look around and we become offended and we compare ourselves to other people. And that's where I think this whole idea of understanding provision and understanding how God provides and understanding what true abundance is, that's what messes with our soul. True confessions. I work hard. I work very hard. I'm one of those guys that works more than I should. That my leadership team will say, Joe Flory will call me and be like, have you gotten your day off? Have you taken a day off? What are you doing for vacation? Are you getting time away? I'm one of those guys that loves to work. And when you work really, really hard, there are times that you can compare yourself to other people. Not what you have, but what? What you don't have. And so God always provided for the Israelites in a way that they were abundantly cared for. Now think with me. I think the one thing that we have to remember is this. How do we view our past provisions? That's the one thing that I hope trips you up today. How have you understood how you have been provided for? Because I would say that the vast majority of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, Christians, truly do not understand that God is their provider. I think that's fair. I think we get into a place that God is our, is our last resort. He's our safety net. Rather than the one who brings our blessings to us. And again, I will be honest. I wrestle with this as well. I wrestle with this as well. So let's do this. Let's jump into the New Testament. Last week, we had talked about what Jesus had dealt with finances. And all Jesus dealt with finances is the same thing that God dealt with finances and materialism is the heart. You see, when you look at the Old Testament, did God need a, a berry? Did God need an apple? Did God need gold from the land that He created? Did God need these animals to, to prove something? 
all God dealt with with the people of Israel and all Jesus dealt with was the heart of humanity. And that's what Jesus dealt with because when you look at it, this is what he did. He looked at finances as a heart issue. He looked at, and then he went through all these other issues. He looked at lust. He says, you know, it used to be like, okay, you looked at a woman and it was lustful. Jesus says, when you look at a woman lustfully, you are actually committing adultery. Why? Because he was dealing with the condition of the heart. He was saying what your heart is doing is you're not, you're not looking at the beauty of the individual. You are, you are abusing that individual. You are going places in your heart and your mind with that individual that you are not supposed to go to. And he dealt with that. He also dealt with hatred. He dealt with unforgiveness. And he said, you know what unforgiveness and hatred is equivalent to? He said murder. I mean, think about this. Have you ever hated someone so much you want to punch them in the face? Thank you. Some realistic people. But what he did is, when we say that we want to punch him in the face, look at she just raised two hands. When we say we want to punch him in the face, we're saying we want to get rid of them. We want them out of our life. We want them off the face of the earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to deal with the heart of humanity. I'm going to deal with the heart of humanity. And I'm not just going to look at the temporary circumstances. Can you take one and pass it around? Can you take one and pass it around? i got a little gift for you guys today. He dealt with the heart. Take one of these and pass it around. And that's one of the things that we lose when we talk about provisions. We lose the attitude of the heart. Listen to this passage that's found in, in Luke 21. And here's the significance of Luke 21. This was not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This was the end of his life. This was Lent. We are in a season of Lent, right? You notice how last week I used a Lent passage and this week I'm using a Lent passage. This is the season of preparing 40 days before he went. Before he went to the cross. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than, than more, put more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. You see what this is? This is called a widow's mite. This is a replica of what she would have put in. And what she would have done is she would have taken her two coins that she had for the week to live on. That's what she was given to live on for two weeks. And she went up to the, to the offering and she dropped it in. Now here's what I'm saying. This is what you have to hear. I don't think Jesus was saying everyone needs to do that. I wonder if deep down that Jesus was struggling with this as well, knowing that this is all she had to live on for the week. And I think this is one of those passages that's easily abused and say, you have to give all to, to whatever or else. I think Jesus in this moment was dealing with the heart of humanity. 
Let me give you a couple reasons why. First and foremost, we say that in the church that, that tithing is no longer a part of us, right? We like to make sure that, okay, if I'm going to go to the plant, that, that tithing is not on the table. Like, like, you don't believe in tithing, right? Like, that's one of the issues that people will ask me first. Like, okay, if I come here, so like, what do you believe about tithing? Okay, now what do you believe about God? Now what do you believe? And then it's like, wait a second, wasn't it what we believe about God first? Jesus never spoke against tithing. He actually said, give to Caesars what is Caesar and give to God what is God. But in this picture, he saw these people that just got so used to just doing the right thing. Just doing the right thing. Doing what they're supposed to do. And he's watching this whole scenario play out where, where the rich were giving. They were tithing. We don't even know what season it was. Was it, was it actually they were giving to the festive and this and all these different things and, and people were dropping it in and dancing around and look at me, look at me. And all of a sudden this woman came up and without hesitation she dropped it in. And I could probably have a good argument theologically that, that Jesus wasn't just saying like that's how you're supposed to live. Because I bet you he had a tension in his heart that like, wow, she just gave it all away. And he pointed to his disciples and he said, he said, he said this, he said, check this out. Let me give you the most important lesson you can have this week. You see that woman? She gets it. She gets it. She has learned in her circumstances that I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the one who does provide. And it's amazing because when Jesus died, something supernaturally happened with the disciples. Something supernaturally happened with with the early church, with the first disciples. After he died, a, a huge people came to know the, the true belief in who Jesus was. Over 3,000 people in one setting had this identity epiphany that Jesus was who He said He was. Now think about this. Their whole time for three and a half years, you have men who were tax collectors and fishermen and, 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 and doctors who said, you know what, we're going to leave everything behind and we're going to journey with Jesus. These were not men who lived in poverty. These were men who had good vocations. Vocations that provided well. These were men who had families. Peter had a mother-in-law that was sick that Jesus healed in the very beginning of his ministry. So Peter and all of these guys for three and a half years had learned that God was their provider. Let me give you two quick examples. First was the feeding of 5,000. The disciples were tired of being with people. And so they just said, hey, let's go into the town and eat. Good excuse, we don't have enough money to feed everyone. And Jesus said, let me teach you a little lesson. And a little boy came up with some fish and some loaves of bread. And he said, watch. And God provided for those people so much that afterwards they took baskets full with them. And so instead of going into town and have a celebratory feast, they sat around the campfire until they ate all they could and fell asleep. That's the one. 
The second was this. There were many different occasions when Jesus sent the disciples out and he said, take nothing with you except the shoes and the clothes and a bag with you and that's it. Don't take anything else and watch how I provide. And God always provided abundantly. And so all of a sudden, they they understand that like, God is for me. God is for me. God is my provider. God is my my Jehovah Jireh. And when Jesus died, they literally thought in that moment that it was over, that it was done. And this is the kicker. This is the, the paradigm shift that we have to have. If we truly believe that God is God and Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus was raised from the dead, then who He said He was is who He is today. Amen? Seriously. This is the, this is the kicker. This is the game changer. Because right when Jesus was raised from the dead, Peter, Peter found Him. Peter wanted to know where he was. And Jesus kept revisiting him. And then finally, Jesus challenged him. He says, do you love me? And he asked him three times. And what did Peter say? Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. And there was this definitive moment that he knew who Jesus was. And such awe came over the early church that let me read this passage to you. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. And to prayer, a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possession and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Here's the problem. We look at this one passage in Acts chapter 2, if you've studied Acts, and this is the only passage we get hung up on. But when you look at the book of Acts, this is continually taking place. This is continually happening. There are other passages where the church truly believed that God was their provider. And there were seasons of plenty and seasons of scarcity. But this was the beauty of it all. They had experienced the power of God in such a means that they knew that that's where the dependency came upon. And for us, that's the paradigm shift. I think you have a lot of people who, who, who don't understand the gospel and it's just, they just don't know it. It's not even their fault in fairness. I mean, there's so many things that are pushing against the gospel. They're like, I just don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean they had a paradigm shift? They just, and you know what? I think for them, this whole idea of provision is is terrifying. I think you have a a group of Christians who, in this world, and I'm not saying here, I'm saying in this world, who have, um, you know that commercial, half-fast, right? Isn't that a great commercial? Half-fast internet? Well, there's another way to say it, but we're not going to say it. That that's how we trust God. We trust Him halfway. We kind of say like, 
I'm going to swim, but I'm really in the shallow end and I'm trusting him. Look at me. Look at me. I'm in the water. I'm in the water. Right? And you're kind of like halfway in. But you're, you're, but you're, but you're enough in that you're saying, I, I trust him on Sunday because I've had a bad week, but I'm not trusting him on Monday. I trust him when my wife and I are getting along amazingly. But the moment she does something wrong, I don't trust him. And you know what the most beautiful thing is? Come here, honey bun. Come here. You know what I love about my wife and I? We struggle. Just like everyone else. And we had a pretty kick-butt fight this week. His fault. My fault. But you know what the beauty is? There comes a point that we know we can't fix it. And so you know who we go to? We go to God. And God always, always makes our marriage better. And I'm not playing with that. This is what's dear to me. This is what I value. And I really think, thank you, let's give her a hand. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Totally put her on the spot. But I really think that so much of faith is dependent on this half-fast internet. That literally, it's like half the gospel. It's half my devotion. It's half my heart. It's half my attitude. It's half who I am. And maybe it's a little bit easier for me because I'm one of those guys that's just either all in or all out. Maybe it's a little bit easier. But don't you think I go through the same struggles every single day as you do? But something happened in the early church that radically changed their lives and their paradigm. And that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was seeing that the healings and deliverances and everything else that happened were not just by chance, but a reality. And that every time they came into a place of scarcity and they pushed into God into their scarcity, just like the Israelites, you know what God always did? He always provided in abundance. And every time they were struggling and they pushed through in the struggling, you know what God did? God made Himself more real. And so here's what I'm going to challenge you today. I want to challenge you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you really believe that God is your provider? That God can take care of you better than any one else. That if right now, if you've been living this, this one foot in the water and one foot out, that, that when you say, God, I'm going to learn to trust you fully and wholeheartedly, that He is going to provide for your emotional needs, your relational needs, your spiritual needs, your mental needs, and even your financial needs. That's the game changer. Because Jesus dealt with the whole heart. And too often in churches, we deal with half hearts. So here's my challenge to you. Can I walk you through a few challenges? And these are challenges that I wrestle through, my wife and I wrestle through, I've wrestled with since the moment I became a follower of Jesus. First, let me show you the first one. 
Everything we have belongs to God. Everything we have, everything that comes to us belongs to God. And so when I trust Him with what I have and I trust Him by giving back, it's actually not a sacrifice. I grew up with a father who one day, and I shared this story one other time, I was 12 years old and we were running around the house and, and he grabbed me and he had, his, I think he had his glasses like this. And my dad, whenever he pointed, for some reason he used his middle finger. And we're like, what are you doing, dad? And he'd be like, come here. I want to talk to you. Sit down. And I would sit down. And he said, I want to teach you about finances. And he says, this is what I do. I give 10% to the church. I give 10% to missionaries. And whenever someone asks me to borrow, as hard as it, I, as it is, I pray about it. And when I give to them to borrow, I never ask for it in return, realizing they probably won't. Do you notice the ending? Realizing they probably won't. And so oftentimes our hearts are broken because we feel that people make promises that they don't keep. And he said, okay, go back and play. I'm like, that was the weirdest conversation I ever had. <laughs> Literally, I kid you not. I kid you not. But I've watched a father who put this in my soul. And even though I didn't follow the ways of Jesus for a long time, when I came back to having a relationship with him, I said, I, gotta, I, gotta, I have to set the example for my wife and for my kids. And so we sat down and we talked about the realities. Do we truly believe that everything we have is for God? Now that's my father's example. I'm not telling you that's what you have to do. I just can tell you that that is what I had learned from. Second, we are to seek first God's kingdom, a first fruits principle, not worrying about what we will eat or drink or trust that he will take care of all of our needs. The reality is in our day of age, God provides what we eat. God provides what we drink. And sometimes he provides more than other stuff. I love what Joe Florio had said back in the fall at our all-church meeting. And he had talked about this idea that he had given crumbs to God for, for most of his life. Right, Joe? That's what you would share. Scraps. So it's almost like I gave him what was left over. And God did something into his heart. He said, you know what? I need to practice the first fruits. Then when God gives, the first thing I give back is to God. I'll be honest with you. I believe this. And I believe this because I believe and I see how God has always provided for my family. Has he provided perfectly? Trust me. We can, we can wrestle with that all day long. But I know this, that I am constantly learning that whenever God gives to me, right away I say, it's yours. It's yours. The first fruits principle. Second, giving benefits the giver. Next one, Mark. One back. Giving benefits the giver. One back. Nope, okay, it might not be up there. Giving benefits the giver. Too often we get into a place that when we give, it's like, ugh. It's like, honey, can you give to the guy who needs something to eat? Blah. And you just kind of give it out of, out of you have to. You get the phone call from St. Jude's. You get the call from the blood bank. You get the whatever. All these different things. And it's never cheerful. What I love that I have seen happen, I see two situations. A friend of mine, Scott Hosier, has talked about this. 
that his spiritual life has been revolutionized by how he's looking at giving is a blessing. I had a conversation with someone uh, over to several years ago, as you know, that, that one of my roles was fundraising for the plant. And I remember that one time a guy wanted to give to the plant and, and he, they actually were a member of the plant. And he says, hey, I'm going to give you this check, but I'm, you can only have this check if you put it towards this. It was a big check. <laughs> it was big. And you know what I said to him? I said, no. I said, that's not how we give to God. I said, you either are giving to God's work for God to further his kingdom in this community or we don't want that. And about a year later, he said to me, he said, Rob, that conversation changed how I view my attitude towards giving. And you know what he became? He became a cheerful giver. Do you know how hard it was to have that conversation with that individual? Do you know how hard it was to see that check with lots of zeros sitting before me? And I had to say, no. No. But do you know what the beautiful thing is? He says, you know what? You've shown me a new side of what the heart of God is. And I want you to have it. How cool is that? Next. It's awesome, isn't it? Next. Although we no longer live under the Old Testament covenant, we let tithe be a tutor for us where we might begin and an indicator showing us that our hearts are still in need of the gospel. People want to say there's no such thing as a tithe. I, I'm, I'm sorry. There's a lot of different teachings out there. But I will say this. I believe the tithe is our tutor. It's where we are able to say, where am I in view of God? And I'll be honest with you. I'll just be very blunt. My wife and I strive to tithe every year. That's our goal, right? That's what we strive. We strive to put ourselves in a place of discipline. Does that mean we stop there? It does not mean we stop there. But what we did as a married couple was we began to start understanding how do we learn to be dependent on God? Now let me give you a true fact. Do you know what the average tithe is that people give that call themselves followers of Jesus? 2%. Matter of fact, 2.5% is what people in the church say they tithe. Here's what I would challenge you. I'm not telling you what to do. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you that if you are a follower of Jesus and tithing has never been a part of your language, I want you to begin to allow tithing to be your tutor. Maybe last year you said, you know what, I gave 2%. And God's saying, let's go to 4 Trust me and watch what happens. Maybe it was 4 and God pushes you to 8 I'm not going to shy away from this. Because I believe when you look at the early church, they gave in abundance. They gave in abundance in such a way that people were able to come to have the experience of Jesus Christ. And this is the last point with giving and stewardship. Trusting where your money is given. You see, for us, we have always trusted the local church that we go to. Whether it was Glen Spey, New York, or in Hawthorne, New Jersey, or Wyckoff, New Jersey, whether it was in a little podunk church in, in Springfield, Missouri, God put us in a church that we trusted the leadership and trusted where they were putting that money. 
Let me give you some examples why I share this. We have really been challenged as a leadership team. First, because of God's blessings, the plant was started. The plant was started with 28 people that went down to 16 people overnight. But the only reason the plant was started was because God's people gave to see this church. What about missions? Africa. Do you know how much money the plant has given to Africa the last six years? And we actually are changing our missions right now. Do you know how much money this little church gave? Over $42,000 for water, for food, for education. That's pretty cool. I think about Hurricane Irene and Hurricane Sandy when every other organization in our area was struggling with giving to to different streets in Mawa. Because because God was giving and God was people were giving to what we were doing, we were able to help families out financially. I remember one time when it was uh, one of of the main people arranging the, the, the cleaning up of what was going on in the town. And he said, we have no more money left. I called an elder and said, can we do it? We ran to Home Depot, filled up a truck, and started getting to work on homes. I think about families that have struggled, even recently, that have needed some help. The one thing that I love about our church is that we are high on stewardship. But this is why. We as as a church truly believe in the power and presence of God. And this message is not about you giving more. This message is not about about where you're at financially. This message is about God's provision. I want to challenge us as a church. And again, if you are here as a visitor, I just want you to, I don't want you to judge us. I don't want you to think differently what I'm talking about. I want you to hear that. Where is our heart as a church? Do we want to be like the Israelites or the early church who believe in the abundance of God? Or do we want to be those people, those Israelites that ran away in frustration and thinking that God does not provide properly? I know what I want for my family. And I know what I want for our church. And I really believe that this is part of our heart conversation. Do we believe that God is Jehovah Jireh? Because if He is Jehovah Jireh, He will provide exceedingly more than you could ever imagine or encounter. I want to invite the band up before we go to communion. Come on up. And I'm going to let God wrestle with your heart, but all I want you to wrestle with mainly, where's your heart? If you're a Christian, where's your heart? If you're just someone here and, and you struggle with finances and provision and, and you're not like, hey, I'm not into this whole Jesus thing, that's okay. Challenge your heart today. Challenge your heart where it is. But I believe this. When an individual and a group gives their heart wholeheartedly to God, that's when we see the fullness of God. That's when we see the fullness of God. This is a fraction. And if you heard that all I said, this is the whole thing, then then you definitely did not hear me. This is a fraction of who we are. But we can't excuse that it's not a part of us. Amen? Amen.